This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. You're listening to my interview with a certified sci-fi legend. He's been in some of the most recognizable work since the 1980s, such as Inner Space, Total Recall, Gremlins 2, Star Trek, and we were so lucky to have him join us for Stargate SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe 2. From The Companion, this is my conversation in sci-fi with the one and only Robert Ricardo. Bob, you did something that, that I, one of the reasons I went into television was to try to write for Star Trek. Can I, and I lived in Canada, and we wrote shows about you know horses and, and hockey. And you got to be in one of the most iconic shows uh, in television for me. And I, I, I caught a little bit of your, um, uh, that David Reed Zoom with the, the reunion thing. And, and you were, one of, one of your comments was that you were completely uh, unconcerned about getting attached or, or, or uh, labeled with a sci-fi thing. Uh, and you're right, obviously, but uh, I embraced it. I wanted, it's exactly what I wanted to do my whole life. Well, um, I, I kind of fell into science fiction. Um, growing up, I remember I was more of a, you know, a horror fan um, than either a fantasy or a sci-fi fan. So I wasn't really knowledgeable about Star Trek when I auditioned for it. Um, I, I remember as a kid watching Lost in Space because I had a crush on, you know, Angela Cartwright, I think. But, but uh, I was not really... I, I, I wasn't aware of what made Star Trek special. I hadn't seen enough of it. And, uh, and, and, you know, I auditioned for it like any other job. And I kind of discovered quickly, uh, you know, in my preparation for once I had been cast by watching several Next Gen episodes that the producers sent me directly, so they sent me their best shows. And, uh, and I just was delighted at the quality of the storytelling. And I finally... We got to get what apparently you got as a much younger person. I started to get what it was about science fiction that that that, that really d- appealed to people and developed such loyalty in a fan base. But you also played a really interesting character. You you got to play a, a character that wasn't human, but in some ways ended up being the most human person on the ship. You know, uh, you 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 had a humanity about your character ultimately that that was. That was actually quite moving, and really good. I I, I appreciate that. I, I've been I've heard my fellow cast members say that my character's arc was the best of anyone's, primarily because he started with so little personality. He was basically a blank slate. It was a new technology, so I, I didn't have to I didn't have to obey any of the rules in Star Trek. Usually, a, a Starfleet officer had to behave in a certain predictable way he had to be stalwart brave and true and my character because he was designed for a very narrow purpose that the moment he was first of all left on all the time when he was designed only for short-term use and then when he was put in situations which were not necessarily medical he did not have to behave the way you expected a starfleet officer to behave and that gave me a tremendous amount of freedom to break the rules and to have all these negative qualities that the fans were not used to seeing in Starfleet uniform. I could be very self-absorbed, 
very uh, arrogant, very petty, very even cowardly in situations. And that, that was what it made it such a delight to play. Eventually he would rise to his better self, but he, st he often led with his negative qualities. And yeah, I think yeah, that's what I, made I him fun. I would say we may, have, uh, we may have borrowed a little bit of, of the doctor uh, when, we, uh, when we wrote McKay for Atlantis. Yeah, except he was human to begin with, so he had far less. <laughs> well, of an so excuse. he says. So he says. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, David. David, uh, just as a sideline, and I've said it before, he's one of the very few actors who just makes me laugh while we're shooting. I mean, on the set. I mean, I was always I was in danger sometimes of, of breaking character because David just was so funny. I've never seen anyone who has turned whining into an art form <laughs> the way David Hewlett has. He just, it's, he, 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 he explores every, every crook and crevice and extremity of whining in such a delightful way that, that he just, uh, with, that, with that a, he, with a big energy too, like with a big energy. <laughs> yes, exactly. He, he, he so, owns it completely. Mm -hmm. And he, yeah, he has no shame um, about, I, I think the doctor eventually became a little uh, ashamed of his pettiness after the fact, but, uh, but, but David Hewlett's character didn't really, he, I never saw him really be ashamed at his, when, it, when he behaved badly. In my, the last Atlantis episode that I wrote was sort of an exploration of his, uh, of his inner, you know, what makes him tick uh, and, and. I actually talked about you about it when I was talking with him on this podcast because you you gave a very moving speech uh, about Alzheimer's. Do you do you remember that? You, yes, uh, I do. Uh, and at the time, my father had just been diagnosed. Right? I don't know if I, if you knew that at the time. So that was part of why I did it. But but it ended up being an, an exploration of of his character <laughs> and how and how even faced with the very very you know death is right here. He's still lying. You're absolutely right. He couldn't. He couldn't help himself. He just. He just kept going. He just kept going. Well, that's a man who knows himself. And yeah. uh, the, to get back to the doctor just for a moment, because I, I've I, I've often said this in uh, in other interviews, I really didn't understand the character when we shot the pilot. It was all brand new to me. I knew. I think what got me through with such success in the pilot is what, as I have what my two daughters call resting bitch face. <laughs> I, I, look, I look unhappy um, when my face is just relaxed and, I th and, and even a little, bit, um, a little bit angry or contentious sometime when my face is just at rest because of the, the big dark eyes and the sort of, I guess, the, the hanging jowls or whatever the heck it is that makes me look unhappy. And, uh, and, and slightly disdainful. And I think that, that that's what really got me through the pilot in the first couple, ep uh, uh, until I began to really understand what the character's issue was. I, I understood him from the perspective of the producers. They thought it was funny to create a willful piece of technology. Remember in the 90s when Voyager first premiered and we all had our home computers and everything and we were all having our hardware and software issues, it seems sometimes that our, um, our technological helpers, our computers and all of our, you know, our early cell phones and whatever, had a mind of their own and they worked sometimes and they didn't work other times and you had to figure out what the problem was. So here we had this 24th century um, a future medical device, a, a computer-generated, holographically projected doctor who was meant 
to have the capacity to learn, adapt, and develop empathy for his patients, but it seemed early on that his only focus on feelings were his own. It was all aimed inward. You know, am I having a good time? Am I being respected the way I feel I deserve to be? So when I finally got it that 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 he was this the, he was this he had this incredible power of information every piece of data every piece of personal experience of 24 different starfleet doctors that had been programmed into him he had this enormous power of knowledge and the complete vulnerability that any individual crew member could turn him on and off like a light switch and that that pissed him off i mean that's that was the core of his of, of his um, moment-to-moment anxiety that he would be snapped out of existence while he was doing something or he would be left in use when he had nothing to do, when he had no goal. So that, that anxiety that was the core of his, you know, bad humor, once that made sense to me, that, you know, that he wasn't being given the respect he felt he deserved for all of his brilliance, then that, I took that and ran with it. And then it became clear. It just, the character just started to play itself. And, and it was really uh, the birth, or what's the right word? The, um, the emergence of, of an AI, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, like a, a three-dimensional, actually sentient being as opposed to a program, which is where the character started. And, and I, I think as a writer, and this is why, again, I, I, I was jealous because you, you got to play in a sandbox I always wished my whole career I got to play in. Um, but I can imagine being a writer and just wishing I could write for that character. I mean, it would be so much fun. Well, I remember the producers telling me early on when, um, when they were taking pitches before Voyager premiered all of the pitches were for the different characters and right. the moment the show premiered all of their pitches were for my character it took the it took the audience just to see him once to get it and then I started getting these great stories uh, I of course was um uh, I could only be in the sick bay environment or on the holodeck because I had to be in a in, you know in uh, yeah. holo projectors had to be present so uh, by season three I remember Brandon Braga had me in and said, we have to, we're creating this mobile emitter device because we have to bring you into more stories. You know, he framed it as any good producer would as a compliment to me, right? Because uh, because the character was so popular, he wanted to be able to, it was a compliment. And, and yeah. at the time I'm thinking, I've got the plum job of the world. I shoot all of my scenes in every episode in one day <laughs> or two days. And suddenly it was like, okay, now I'm going to have to work like everybody else does. So, but, but, but it, but I was, I was, I was not only flattered, but I was happy to get, to bring the character, you know, to have him be part of the full crew episodes, which before that he really wasn't. He was always, if it was a medical show and a lot of it took place in sickbay or if it was a holodeck show, but now he could join the crew on away missions. And, and it was, it was, it really was fun to be able to interact with all of my fellow actors uh, much more often. In other scenes too, and in other environments, which which the character often felt, this is like, and you played it really nicely because whenever you were in a new environment, it was like like you'd never seen this before. It was brand new to you, and mm-hmm. and you kept that fresh. And that was always something in Stargate that was hard for um, for a- actors and us as writers to, to hang on to, which is which is guys, 
you're on another planet. I know it seems blasé by season five, but you're on another planet. And that's what you did with that character, which I really admired uh, going, you know, as you encountered something brand new, you took it as something brand new. And, you know, that's not just in the writing. That was, that was something that you uh, imbued in the character. You also had a great experience, and I did too, of being on a show that lasted seven years. And that is pretty unusual in television. You get this family atmosphere. Absolutely. And also we made 25 episodes a season. You know, you, you, uh, uh, when I watched the first season of Picard, which I really uh, enjoyed, and then I thought, and, and I thought, wow, the production values are great and all of the, you know, the, the visual effects and the action sequences. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. They, cr- they only cranked out 10 of these. We did two and a half times that many in less time or about the same time. About the same time, yeah. So um, we worked very quickly and we worked long hours. And, uh, and Kate Mulgrew, God bless her, is a miracle when it comes to line learning. I mean, she's just always perfect. She's the only actress I've ever ever seen who doesn't carry a script to the set and never refers. I mean, I mean, she might call for one word, you know, in, in over the course of a week from the script supervisor, but otherwise she entered the, the set with everything in her head. And, uh, and I had huge admiration for that. And she was our leader. So, you know, she set a pretty high bar. That's important. I think it, it is important when, um, when somebody, comes prepared and everybody else has their script in their hand they kind of slightly slowly put it behind their backs (laughs) (laughs) well i would hide mine i had it but i i hid it very well (laughs) yeah of course we had that experience on travelers uh in in season one i don't know if you've seen it if you haven't please watch it it's fun it's a a show that i just i did my last show with eric mccormack and eric was like that and 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 it was really great to see him walk on set with perhaps the the most dialogue and uh, and all the young kids like because some we had a very young cast relative to him uh, and uh, you know with their three lines reading them from the script and and I said to them afterwards the only guy who could get away with walking in on a script without a script doesn't have it and and you guys are all reading yours so maybe that's a little lesson and they they learned it they learned it pretty quick it's setting an example is, is a great is a great thing to do. One little thing that you and I have in, co- in common, and of course, <laughs> it's, it's by no means in common in, in any re- realistic sense, but I, I, I spent uh, eight or nine years in the theater before I started working. You have, have an ongoing theater, and at a very high level, mind you, a career. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the theater. I mean, I, having just at your young age working with Jack Lemmon, in tribute would have been like talk about learning from the best well um i I, it is uh it's an extraordinary experience to have had as a young actor if i could wish an experience for a young actor it would be to work with someone like jack lemon who had been at the top of his profession at the time i met him for 25 years he'd been a major movie star and a you know an accomplished theater actor and live tv actor before that I met Jack at 54, I think I was, uh, I was 24, and we had the primary relationship in the play. It was almost a two-hander. It, there were yeah. five other characters, but it was really a father and son comedy drama. And uh, 
I had to really stand up to Jack. I was his unhappy son who believed he'd been a delinquent father. You know, he divorced my mom at a young age. And then the way the, this, um, the, uh, um, the writer, Bernard Slade, uh, who became a great friend, uh, who he lost just uh, only a few years ago, a couple of great, years ago. Great, great writer. And Canadian, a great Canadian. Yes, yes. Uh, Bernard uh, Slade uh, said to me, uh, at, at, you know, in rehearsal, he said, he's the kind of father who would send you five presents for your birthday and then forget the next two birthdays or he would you know do something nice for Christmas then you didn't hear from him for two years he was completely unreliable and um, Jack of course is just such a kind and generous and thoughtful actor you know uh, I, I remember early in rehearsal saying to him Mr. Lemon Jack Jack kid call me Jack please all right Jack uh, if there's if there's something you'd like me to do differently or if you don't like the way I'm playing something feel free to to tell me he said you know what kid he said you're too honest an actor to do anything wrong you do whatever you want that was that was the extent of our conversation what a compliment too and uh and and we just we had so much fun together we played tricks on each other can I tell a, a behind the scenes story oh. Whenever a show runs for a long time, uh, actors play games uh, with each other on stage. I don't remember. I think I started it. Um, I had a rubber vomit, as childish as this is. I knew that Jack checked his props every night. He checked the bar because one of the first things he did was he would go to the bar on the set and make a drink. So I, I put this rubber, I would start hiding the rubber vomit in places where only he could see it. So it would be sitting on top of the cocktail napkins on the bar and different, you know, it would, and then the rubber vomit disappeared one day. And when I'm on stage with Jack and I opened my, my lens cleaning kit to clean my camera lens, the rubber vomit popped out of the bag and bounced on the floor. Now, Jack was like a little kid. He was so excited to see how I reacted that he broke character and started to laugh, right? Whereas he couldn't get me to laugh. So it became an ongoing thing to see if he could crack me up on stage. Okay. So this went on for, you know, mostly in matinees for a while. And one day the prop master uh, gave me a, a, a picture, like just a little tiny three by five picture that was incredibly dirty. I don't know where he got it. This is long before internet pornography, but it was uh, the way he described it was a couple, uh, a young man having lunch with a friend. I don't know how to describe it. It was, too, <laughs> it was a couple engaged in flagrant delecta. Anyway. So I took the picture and put it inside a photo album. Now in the scene, what's supposed to happen is I'm giving my dad, Jack's character, a hard time. And he's handed me a, fo a photo album and he's talking to me so he can't see the pictures I'm looking at. And, in the, and I'm supposed to take one picture out of the album and hold it and he comes around and looks at the picture and his line is, oh, you never knew your grandmother, did you? <laughs> So I've got this completely disgusting porno picture where grandma is having fun with, with uh, some very amply endowed young gentleman. And um, so Jack comes around and he glances at the picture and he would get this little one second gleam in his eye that said to me, okay, kid, so you want to dance, huh? <laughs> Like it happened in a second. It was a flash in his eye that only I could see that he was, he was, he was picking up the gauntlet. Okay, so he doesn't do anything. He goes, you never knew your grandmother, did you? And he talks and talks. And about a minute and a half later in the dialogue, he's supposed to say, so what would you like to do? We can go have lunch. We can go to a museum. We could look at more pictures of your grandmother. 
like that, right? Now, I don't laugh, but the other six cast members are off stage watching this whole thing. And, and this huge laugh comes in from the wings, and that makes Jack laugh. So they're laughing off stage. He laughs on stage at me, and he never got me to break. So I, uh, I, I, you know, and then after that, I think we gave up. But uh, that's one of my fondest memories of Jack, that he, he would love to play. He had that absolutely childlike delight in having a little fun while still giving the audience a great performance. We, were ha we had this little tiny undercurrent of something else going on that kept it very alive and us very focused on fresh, each other. Fresh, yeah. Yeah. Well, was, I, I mean, tremendous how deep in the run fun. was that? How deep in the run was that? Oh, that was pretty late in the Broadway. We did it again in California, but I would say that in the Broadway run, which opened in, in June and ran through the end of the year, that was probably, I want to say, you know, October, November, when we closed, you know, the week before Christmas. So it was pretty, it was about three quarters of the way through the run. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's... Uh... That's that's still what a memory. What a great story, too. Oh my god! <laughs> no, but you. Uh, so you you you, uh, you love the stage, obviously, and and mm -hmm. I know you sing, and I know you play piano. There's a piano right behind you. Well, I actually know uh, that's just this is just a gag. I, I sit at the piano, gag. but I don't. I play the guitar, but you can't sit. You can't sit <laughs> on the guitar, <laughs> or you can, but it's just not comfy. No, no, no. But um, you you you're still you're still doing the theater. You're still going going back mm -hmm. and doing it. And now, and going back and forth, I asked, I asked this a, a lot. Eric does it too. How, how difficult is it to, to jump from genre to genre and from form to form? How difficult is it as an actor to, to go into, you know, a stage and, and cause it's a different energy. It really is. It's a different I mean, energy, but you, it's also a, it's a different process from day one. Yes. In the, for the benefit of your audience that are not, actors or, or perhaps have not done any theater, it's a very different rehearsal process. Uh, to start with film and television, you basically go in with your lines learned and then the director will stage the scene and, and then you're performing the scene within minutes of, you don't, you don't really get to, I mean, in, in an ongoing television show, in theory, you know your character quite well and how he would behave. But in a theater process, you sit around a table, you read the play over and over again for the first day or two. Some directors get you on your feet the first day, but that's unusual. Normally you read through the entire play twice on the first day of rehearsal. And then on the second or third day, you'll get up and you'll, and you'll start um, blocking it. You don't know the lines, the script is in your hand, and you kind of, you know, the director often you'll read the scene two or three times and then it's like, where do you think you would start? You want to start on the couch over there, Bob? And how do you feel? You know, and you basically just start to feel where, the, I mean, the script gives you the location of the scene and some backstory on the characters, obviously, but then you stage it. And then, and I, usually by the time I've, I've staged a scene, that's when I start to learn the lines because then you've already explored how the character moves and where, where, when he might, when the best time to pick up this prop or to cross to the other actor, it all, it all develops organically. Are and you, have you, you start... uh, how, sorry to interrupt. How, how often mm -hmm. have you workshopped an original play? I mean, the, the, it's a slightly different process even for that. Right. Well, I was lucky. I, I a lot of plays, uh, my first Broadway show, a play called Gemini, 
which is the fourth longest running non-musical in the history of Broadway, I believe, fourth or fifth. Um, uh, that play uh, was done at Playwrights Horizons. I replaced, uh, the, they brought in three new actors uh, out of the cast of, I think, seven. And, uh, and then we did the play uh, at a regional theater, then moved off Broadway, then moved to Broadway. So we workshopped that play quite a bit. Um, even though it had been through its first workshop phase without me. Um, and I was, I've been in, uh, Tribute was a new play. Um, I was in David Mamet's first produced play in New York, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. Wow. While I was, while I was still training, I was 21 years old. Love that play. I had luck with a lot of, with, with a, a lot of new plays. Um, one of the very first plays I did uh, in workshop was about Jack Kerouac. Uh, great production. I made friends in that. Um, my buddy Joe Pantoliano, we've been friends for 45 years. He and I both played beat generation poets. Uh, Lane Smith played Jack Kerouac. I played Allen Ginsberg. That was a workshop production. And uh, so working on a new play is it very challenging for an actor because you often you, you'll you'll often improvise a scene if you don't if the, if certain dialogue isn't working sometimes the director with the playwright sitting right there will say all right let's you know let's take the given circumstances here and let's just improvise the scene sometimes and then the playwright will go away look, having watched the improvisation and tinker with his lines perhaps incorporate some of the lines that came in the improv it's all very exciting, but when you have a fixed script that's been done before, a classic or whatever, you still do, you still, even though the lines are set, there's still a process in, of exploring, you know, the subtext of the dialogue that you get to do much more in a theater situation, film and television, in a good film with a good budget, often they'll rehearse for a couple of weeks, uh, depending on the nature of the material. Um, but it's it's in television, you don't really get, the, the most you'll ever get is a script read-through at lunch the day before you start a new episode. You don't yeah. really get a, re a theater-like rehearsal process. And I try, uh, to, I try to include, uh, depending on the scene, like if it's a, if it's a tight two-hander, I, I like doing a rehearsal day like if it's if it may as well be a play it's mm -hmm. it's very helpful to to take that and to explore because you can get so much more out of the the day when you're actually shooting if you if you have that opportunity it's rare that you can do that I, I i agree with you but you you can find the time if if you're of like mind with your yeah and sometimes it's just just the key scene sometimes like uh on travelers we there was a scene in, in season two and, and, and I said, and it, like, it was like an eight page scene. And, and I said, and Eric's was directing, it was only his second episode directing. And I said, you should, you should do a rehearsal day on this scene because it's the hardest scene and it's gotta go bop, 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 or it's not gonna work. And you know, the other big difference in film and television is that, you know, that energy has to be, you can't impose that editorially. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you, it has to be on the stage. And, and I, like, I like shooting and, and you know, having that energy in a wider shot so that, so that you can have that stage-like energy of actors actually interacting and overlapping and you know, literally having that cue bite that, that, um, that you can't usually do in traditional television.
There was a, a, a Voyager episode, a very dramatic one for my character called Latent Image, where the doctor basically has uh, you know, the technological equivalent of a nervous breakdown. In, it, it was described by the writer Joe Minoski as a, a Sophie's Choice episode. The doctor has two, in a crisis situation, two crew members are about to die from the same, exactly the same problem, medical problem. And he has to pick one over the other and he picks the crew member that he knows better. And then he cannot resolve the guilt of having, by choosing one, he is, he is um, uh, by necessity commanded the death of the other one. And he believes that he's violated his Hippocratic oath. He's, and so he develops a conflict in his program and he keeps running through the same mental loop of the decision over and over and over again and, and just is going literally crazy. So I had a big breakdown scene in that. And I, I asked the director that two days before we shot it, Mike Vehar, I said, um, you know, I've got that big scene where I really have to rant and it's like a monologue. Uh, could we just go and we walked to the other set, we walked through it, we talked about it. I showed him what I thought I'd like to do. I had some ideas that involved that, uh, props that I wanted to throw as I started to get out of control. So I had to get his approval so I could go to the prop department and say, I need this, this, and this. And then all, but because he was willing and anxious to do it, the scene was so much better because we'd had a rehearsal a couple of days before he could think about how he wanted to shoot it. I could think I, I could associate all of the gesture with that big speech I had with what I wanted to do physically. So if, you know, and it, it, I know that it was much better than it would have been had we left it up, you know, to the morning uh, that we oh, went to shoot. Yeah. It. Yeah. That's, that's television is downright mean. And in that respect, and, and you, I can't tell you how many times, I've, oh man, I wish I'd thought of saying this <laughs> or suggested mm -hmm. this. But as the writer producer on set, you, you know, sometimes I think, and I tell young writers quite often, the best thing to do is to just shut up and, and let the actors and director, it's not your job. You've written, you've done your thing. It's, it's, it's the, now it's time for the director and the actor to, to find it. But man, it's a tough job. And being an actor on a television show is a tough job. You came into uh, uh, SG1 as a guest character and became a, basically a, a series regular on Atlantis uh, eventually. And then, and you are one of the few people who were in all three shows. You were with us uh, over quite a long period of time, really. I mean, it was a number of years. I, I have nothing but fond memories of my Stargate experience from the very first one where I was hired. It was Heroes Part Two. I think it was your fifth season of SG One. Yeah, Robert Cooper wrote that. It was great, and it was such a the way I heard about it was that it was such a great episode. It was ten minutes long. They didn't know how to cut it. You guys didn't know how to cut it, so you went back to the Sci Fi Channel or whoever your was uh, was it Sci Fi at that time or Showtime. Rob said to me, it was, it was, uh, season five was, uh, was it season five? No, it was season, it was beyond season five. Oh, okay. It, was, it might've been season six, but, uh, but Rob wrote in uh, that episode and I remember the phone call. It's too long, but it's too good to cut. What do you think about making it a two-parter? And I said, let's do it. So we got on the phone together and we said, we're making it into a two-parter. 
And they went, well, 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 don't do that. You don't have to do that. And we just did it. And <laughs> it was so good and, and so, so much the better for it. But my car- if you recall, uh, the Woolsey character who was brought in just to uh, assign blame for the tragedy yeah. of yes. the death. Um, and he, so he, he was literally, he was like a hatchet man. He had n- absolutely no warmth no humor. All he was there to do was to make everyone as uncomfortable under the microscope as he possibly could. And I had to interview all of the other regular cast members. Um, there was a, Andy Makita did this wonderful trick, um, roundy, roundy shot where I am interview every time the camera comes around on me, the person that I'm interviewing bails out of the chair and the next person gets in the chair. Yeah, so that by I the time the camera that. fluidly moves around, you see a different person. It was one shot that I'm interviewing five different people in. It was very, it was a great shot. All the other actors were great, but I had to work so hard to not react follow to them. the- yeah. yeah, to not follow them visually. Yeah. You had to focus yeah. on people that were bailing out of a chair. You had to look straight at them as if they were still there. It was very technical. I think I shot 12 pages in one day. Everybody was great to me and it was exhausting. And I thought that was it. I was a one-off. I, you know, I, I came in, I did the job. I was what I call filler material to connect all of the different scenes from the different episodes and, uh, and walked away having had a great time and couldn't have been more surprised when you guys asked me to come back because I didn't, I didn't see how <laughs> I could. Wasn't it already long? Yeah, no, we, we, uh, <laughs> we had a, Rob and I did that a couple of times. We did that with the pilot of Universe too because we thought, and I did it actually in the, in the second episode uh, and maybe, maybe it isn't always good. Sometimes it, it, you're, you're stretching it out too much. But in the case of Heroes, it made a good episode a great episode. And it deepened mm-hmm. your it deepened your character, and and it it opened the door for uh, Woolsey's uh, long redemption arc, <laughs> in a way. I mean, <laughs> you I mean you had as big an arc almost in, as Woolsey as you did as the Doctor. You well I as mean, far as yeah as far as uh, metamorphosizing and finishing place yeah, yeah exactly I completely agree, um, and I, I I didn't I I used to joke at uh, convention appearances that. Uh, you know, I was, I was introduced just as a complete douchebag. Woolsey, the first time, is just an out-and-out, colorless, humorless douchebag, not unlike the doctor in the pilot of Voyager. Yeah, and very then, similar. But every, every time you guys asked me to come back, I had a, a glimmer of a positive quality. So the way I would describe it, I was a complete douchebag. But the first time I came back, I was a complete douchebag who really believed in the importance of civilian oversight of a secret military operation. And then the next time, I was a complete douchebag who really believed in civilian oversight of a secret military operation (laughs) who didn't want to be a complete douchebag anymore. You know what I mean? But he had like a little, just a little faint, you know, glimmer of, of humanity that grew and grew and grew. And then eventually, when you... You know, when I got the call saying you wanted me to take over the Atlantis expedition, I remember saying to Joe Malazzi, wait a minute, I'm a coward. (laughs) I run away. I run away from danger. We saw that in the swarm. I said, I I have no leadership skills. Nobody likes me. No one would follow me. 
how are you going to work that out? He said, don't worry, that's our problem. I said, great, I'm in. <laughs> so, and, and, it, and, it, and you know what? It, it was, uh, to a certain extent, uh, our problem, but, uh, but you also pulled it off. Because, and this is, this is I tell writers this, young, uh, young writers especially, but, but all good actors do this anyway. When they're playing a villain, they're still playing a human being with, their, with an agenda. They don't, no one plays villain effectively. You, you, you went in saying, okay, well, this is my job and I have to do this thing. And, and that's, that's what I've been hired to do. And, and I'm going to do it, damn it. And, and that's, and, but there's a person in there, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what every, and, and, and uh, especially if there's a script that at least, at least allows for that opening, you know what I mean? The, the douchebag mm-hmm. with a heart of gold. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and I always tell, you know, okay, yes, this is the villain in our story, but the villain doesn't know they're the villain. The villain has their agenda. The villain is, is doing their thing and, and they think they're right or they wouldn't be trying to do it. And that's what, uh, that's why if, the, if there's anything in the script at all, that's why eventually it's, it's, you could go back and see that it's still the same character. Wouldn't you say? I, I, I completely agree that, uh, that, he, in even in Woolsey's first appearance, he has a very serious, as he sees it, a very serious task. This person should not should not have died, and something had to go wrong. And I'm going to find out where the failure in leadership was. He's unwilling to believe that it was just an accident, and and uh, so you you could say, well, that's a very noble calling, right? He wants uh, a doctor. Uh, is it Keller? I always get uh, yeah, I get yeah. a problem with my my character name, Doctor Keller. Character. Right. Oh so no, Jewel we, was we, the second character. You're talking about Janet yeah, Fraser. Oh, yeah, Doctor yeah. Fraser. Exactly. Forgive me. Yeah. So he wants. Uh, you could say that the noble agenda on his part is to basically, I'm not going to say avenge her death, but to make whoever was responsible, wherever this, whoever is accountable for this loss of, of, of the member of the team will have to pay the price. So you can frame it in a way that makes him sound, you know, um, make it, make it uh, his calling, as I said, more noble. But basically he had, if he had any people skills at all, he completely hid them early on. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't really know. I have to say mm-hmm. this too. I mean, this, this was season seven, I'm remembering now. And, and it mm-hmm. was the season that were, Rob got a, 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 we thought it was going to be the last season. We were almost sure this is the last season because everybody's contracts are running out. We were going to start uh, writing Atlantis, which is what I was off doing. Rob was the showrunner with Paul and Joe in season seven. I, I came, I, I didn't leave. I just, I, I stepped back. And so I still wrote episodes and I, I wrote Lost City and, and, and another couple. But I wasn't the, you know, the, the guy in charge. Um, and so Terrell calls me and says, um, Brad, they want to kill my character. What, is this your idea? And I went, no, no. But honestly, it, I, this is the last season and, and, and it's a great way for the character to go in a, in a bang. I, I, don't, I don't think it's, you know, don't take it personally. They, Rob wants his episode to have as much power as possible. And so she went, okay. And then, so when season eight was announced... <laughs> <laughs> I felt like a, a terrible human being, uh, but I really didn't know. I mean, we, the only way we could do Atlantis was if we kept making SG-1, the laws of laws, uh, the law of large numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, 
and having the resources combined. So, so uh, we, did, we did a number of seasons uh, at the same time. So 25, you said you did 25 Voyagers. We did 25, we did 40 episodes wow. at once of SG-1 in Atlantis at the wow. same time. It was insane. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely insane. And it burned me out. But, um, <laughs> but you know, having done it is easier than doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's it, uh, in retrospect. But it was good. I mean, it was good television. And I, and I, and then, and then you, and then you transitioned into universe. You did it. You did a great episode uh, with you. It was you and RDA, right? Oh yeah. That was so much fun. Cause I, I had not really worked with, I'd been on um, SG1 maybe four or five episodes and hadn't even met him yet. Or I only met him at a, at a yeah. cast dinner rather than I, I hadn't been in a scene with him. And uh, so then to get to, you know, to be in a bottle show with him and uh, to spend all that time together was a lot of fun. We had a lot of mutual friends. There was a lot of gossip that we could accomplish between shots. And uh, it was just, it was total fun. He is, he's, he is, uh, you know, he, he's, he was great to me, RDA, and, and, and we had a, a really fun relationship. And he liked the fact, you know, that Mike, that Woolsey was, was such a, you know, kind of a, a, a frightened kind of nerdy guy who really, you know, by the end of that show got to show some courage and all that and to, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, that was kind of the, the end of that arc. If you think about it, he uh, showed a lot of courage. It was, uh, it, it was fun. I, I imagine Woolsey is still right now involved uh, somewhere in, uh, in Stargate Command, if uh, it's 11 years later, I could see absolutely. Him still being I, th I think that one of the fun things about uh, that character too, if you remember the time that he took control of, of was right after the big financial downturn of 2007. I think it was around 2008 or whatever that I became the leader of the. Yeah. And we had all of these people, at least in America and probably Canada as well, a lot of people who had lost their retirements. They'd lost all of their money. Yeah. And, and people that thought had been retired for several years were suddenly trying to re-enter the workplace and redefine themselves. And, and that's what made playing Woolsey seem so timely. You know, here I am uh, playing a character in his earlier middle 50s who had done one thing his whole career and suddenly... He was thrown in the, you know, in the driver's seat, uh, 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 and he'd only critiqued other people's leadership. He'd never been a leader himself. So he, but but just like so many people in the workplace after this financial downturn, he was trying to reinvent himself in middle age, and that's what made it seem very timely. I think, uh, you know, in the in the e in either. Yeah, that's an apt metaphor, actually. Yeah, I I don't know if I uh, told you uh, her if you have heard about it from Joe. Uh, I MGM. Uh, just about it well over a year ago now uh uh asked me to come up with another stargate pilot which surprised me i, I wrote it for them and i had just i was just finishing it when COVID hit and that slowed everything down and then the guy uh who who asked for it uh no longer works at that company and then and then mgm got sold to uh amazon so it is just completely in the middle of nowhere I mean, I would think if you buy a company like MGM with all of their, you know, storied properties and all of that, you know, all that intellectual property that can be reinvigorated like Stargate, that that would have to be a top priority of them. 
I completely agree with you. Uh, I just don't know if I'll have anything to do with it anymore. But uh, you're right that they will definitely, they would be crazy mm -hmm. not to mind that franchise. It's, it's you know, 330 plus hours of, of television that, that there is going to be on Amazon, I, I guess, I, I assume, uh, going forward for a while, they would be and crazy if they, not if to. They can, if they want to tip their hat or learn a lesson from the Star Trek franchise, look at the enormous popularity of Picard bringing back not only Patrick Stewart's character, but some of the legacy characters of uh, Next Generation and even our beloved Jerry Ryan um, from Voyager. So there's a hunger, yes. I, I think, out there among the longtime fans of the long of the, of the legacy sci-fi franchises like Stargate and Star Trek to see their beloved characters again, you know, Oh, 100%. And it, and it was my intention to include uh, legacy characters, absolutely. Uh, and introduce oh, of something course. new. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, because it's mm -hmm. 10 years later, you know, you've got some fresh blood, but but I, I think it would be wrong not to uh, not to bring in, you know, the, the, the people who made it what it is and, and the characters who made it what it is. You have to, and therefore the actors who made it what it is. Um, and I'm going to try. We, I have a, I have a little project that you might, uh, that, that I'm also doing with a companion who, who, uh, with whom we're doing this uh, podcast. Um, uh, they were saying maybe we could do a read through of something with, with the Star Trek, uh, Stargate characters, <laughs> Star Trek, uh, uh, Stargate characters, and, uh, and uh, I, I said, yeah, but what do we read? We, we can't. It can't be any of my scripts. I mean, no one would agree to that. Can't certainly can't be the new pilot. Uh, uh, and then I thought, what? And I don't know where I did, this idea, idea came from, other than the fact that I read a lot, a lot about this shit. But what if an AI wrote scenes, read all the Stargate scripts and all the series, all 300 plus episodes, uh, and you basically input that information and then created scenes, literally had AI written scenes. Um, and, and, we, and we get the actors, or some of the actors, because we can't have them all, uh, in the first try, at least, uh, to, to read the scenes and see what happens. And, and uh, so we kind of put it out there in the world. And uh, Lawrence Maroney, who just happens to be uh, the lead AI guy at Google, said, raised his hand and said, I'd love to try that. Let me, let me give that a shot. And I had met him years ago. Uh, and, and, and he remembered that fondly. And so right now, he is creating AI having consumed all of the uh, uh, all of the episodes ha having written uh, models for you know multiple characters and and has a it, like literally is starting from the ground up with what he calls a cluster of ais it's not like one big machine it's just it's he's so smart and and it is so interesting and so hopefully uh by end of september early october we're, we're going to wow, be able to do a read through be, of that that would be Isn't total that fun? fun to to play Especially having played an AI for so long, to actually <laughs> exactly. to actually have the AI move from my performance over to the writer's chair is a, it's mind boggling. But <laughs> exactly, yeah. Having made the decision I made when I was an actor that I would be a far better writer, I don't. I'm not sure if that's the case. Uh, but no, I think it's going to be fun, and, and I'm hoping. And I th I thought of that because of your comment on the legacy characters. I wanted to, I wanted to keep. Um, that idea alive, whether I'm the writer producer who makes it or not, I want to make sure 
that whatever happens, whatever Amazon or MGM step forward with, that they don't just ignore what mm -hmm. came before. I think that would be smart and good. We have fan questions that oh, they great. recorded separately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, they're going to actually ask them. I, I don't even know what they are, but it's, it's kind of fun. So Tommy, why don't you roll some of those? Hi, my question is, You've had the chance to work with some incredible leading women on both Stargate and Star Trek Voyager. And I was wondering if there's any um, lessons that maybe you learned from them that you wouldn't have learned necessarily from a leading male actor. Um, loved you in both of those shows. Well, um, I've already spoken about Kate Mulgrew, um, who is... Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, we originally had another actress, uh, the wonderful Jean-Vierre Bujold, cast as Captain Janeway, and they shot a couple days with her before my character worked, so I never worked with her. And there was a mutual parting of the ways between Miss Bujold and the producers. Um, I think, you know, she was used to shooting feature films and shooting a page a day, and suddenly she was shooting 9 to 12 pages a day. There were whatever reason... She, uh, they left supposedly with a mutual understanding. And then we had no captain. And we were all in a, in a, in this state of terror because we understood that they might uncast any one of us. And if, if they couldn't find the woman they wanted to play Captain Janeway, the rumor we heard was it would be another male captain and they would probably change the sex of one of the other characters that had already been cast. So we had this Russian roulette feeling that any one of us might get, might disappear if they didn't find the right woman. And then Kate Mulgrew uh, came in uh, near the end um, and was cast very quickly, stepped on the stage, and from the first day, Kate was just an extraordinary leader as an actress, not just as a character. We know she was great as a character, but the way she behaved, the way she comported herself, she led, she led our show um, the seven years. So um, that is a, you know, that, that is, uh, and I had been on shows before that, with all female leads, uh, the China Beach, the d Vietnam drama that I did before, the 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 point of view character played by um, Dana Delaney, Nurse McMurphy, my character, the doctor who worked with her, was the ancillary character. So even though the relationship was kind kind of like um, uh, uh, kind of like a mash relationship between uh, you know uh, where I had the Alan Alda part, I was shifted off to the side. So. So I have, I have played uh, in a number of shows where this, uh, I was ahead of my time, let's put it that way, where, where the lead characters, the point of view characters were women. And I've always been proud of that uh, and I loved it and loved seeing them shoulder the burden so commandingly of the success of the show, the way Dana did on China Beach along with Marg Helgenberger. And, uh, and certainly the way Kate did on Voyager. So I guess um, I, I, if I had to say I learned a lesson from them that I couldn't have learned from a man, I, I would say that in an industry that has been traditionally male-dominated, and in, this is in the mid-'90s when every studio executive who I think was a male at Paramount was breathing down Kate's neck and judging everything she did from the way her hair looked in each episode um, under an enormous pressure and scrutiny, 
she never flagged in her, uh, to my eye, in her determination and her commitment to create that character um, the way she, the way she wanted to do it, and uh, and with you know uh, and to imbue her with complete reality and authority, all of those things she did in in a very difficult environment on Stargate. Um, I think from the the moment I stepped on the set for my first guest star as Richard Woolsey, Amanda Tapping came up to me and welcomed me like a family member. She was so um, uh, she was so kind and generous. I would say women really are better than most actresses. Women women on the set are are tend to be more welcoming. In my experience often than the men, the, the men. I don't know what it is. There's just something about that, that, and Amanda was my, um, was really was my welcome wagon on the show. Having said that, uh, the late Don Davis couldn't have been nicer as well. So the whole cast was welcoming to me, but there was something about Amanda that was, was especially, um, welcoming and made me feel very relaxed about being there, very, uh, you know, part of the family off, off the bat. So I would say that there's, there's something about a, a women playing powerful characters where they seem to maintain all of their, you know, uh, all of the traditional nurturing side of, of, of womanhood and then at the same time, without losing any of the power and authority of being a female leader. And science fiction, I think, has shown us that because it's set in the future where we're all equals to see, you know, to see if you want to see men and women truly uh, behave equally, we look, we look toward the future. We're trying to create that future now, but I think it is best represented in, in science fiction. I would agree with that. I, I, I... Amanda and I are still friends, and and uh, and she has that reputation everywhere she goes of being one of the warmest people on set. But uh, uh, as a director, uh, she's really, really come into her own as a director, and became one of my core directors on Travelers, and 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 remembers uh, remembers what it's like uh, for a new person to step on the stage, and what it literally what it feels like to to be the new guy, and uh, it makes a huge difference. Because you, you know it's hard enough to feel like you don't belong, or to be meant to feel like you you know to, to be not feel completely welcomed. It's way too stressful. Tommy, go ahead. Hi, Rob. It's Sandra here. I wanted to ask you about your evolving role as Woolsey on Stargate. Was it something that just took a life of its own, or did you have a discussion with the producers about how Woolsey was going to be projected over a long term? given that you appeared in SG-1 and Atlantis. Thank you. Uh, I would have to say that when I did um, the one-off guest star, the turning point seemed to be going out to dinner that night with Joe Malazzi and Paul Muley, and they just decided that they liked me. They, they, they were aware of my work from Voyager, but there was something about our social event that night where they decided, hey, we wouldn't mind having this guy around again. And, and even though I thought they'd painted themselves in a corner, they began the slow process of introducing positive qualities, as I joked about earlier in this podcast. And um, 
when Joe finally called me with the news that Brad and uh, Robert had decided that, that to offer me the leader of the Atlantis expedition, I pointed out all of the reasons why I thought that was going to be challenging. And he said, and this was the key thing, that's our problem, meaning we will solve those problems. All you have to do is, is be willing to take on the challenge, which I was. And, and in the very first episode where I'm a series regular in season five of Atlantis, there were three little moments that won the audience's heart over for Woolsey's new situation. As Brad just said, being the new guy. Here he is, the former villain, so to speak, of all of the other leaders of the Atlantis expedition. Suddenly, he's the leader himself. He's sitting in the chair of authority and telling people what to do. The three moments were after the first meeting in the briefing room, he can't get the door to open. And he's waving <laughs> yeah. his arm, foolishly trying to get out of there. There was a, there's a moment where um, Taylor hands him her infant child and he has never held a baby before and doesn't know what to do with the baby. And I think the third time, I think it was also in this first episode, someone comes to see him in his office and he has a photograph, a frame photograph of his dog and he lost his dog to his wife in the divorce. <laughs> those, three little, those three little moments, I think, did more to open the hearts of the audience to this man than anything I could ever have dreamed up. And I, I do remember that Joe asked me if I had other ideas. And the only one that I remember suggesting that he did immediately was I said, since Woolsey has lived his life in a business suit and now he's in this Atlantis jumpsuit or, you know, what if he went back to his room after a hard day and put on a business suit, played music and had a, a drink to relax, that he relaxed in a business suit because that was his old familiar uniform. So that's what we did that moment in one of the shows uh, after a particularly, you know, um, uh, tough uh, experience. The, the, the coda to the show was Taylor comes to, my, um, comes to my quarters with a message and I'm there in a business suit. It, 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 I, I love that. I, I did love that moment. <laughs> those, last two, uh, those last two beats about the, the photograph and the, the, those, are, those are pure Joe. That, mm -hmm. that is Joe. <laughs> well, of course, and anybody who, who watches, who, you know, who watches his Twitter feed or his blog knows what yeah. an incredible yeah. dog lover he is. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had dinner with him last, uh, just, just before the pandemic. And uh, it's, it's good to catch up with him. He's a great guy. Indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, we love our Joe. Um, in fact, he and I, I was talking to him about the new Stargate. I, I hope, I do hope we get a chance to do something. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tommy. Hi, I'd like to ask Robert Picardo a question. Um, why are bald men in science fiction so sexy? Hmm? <laughs> I hope you all know that that's my voice. <laughs> I, uh, I called up, I was so intrigued with the link where you could just punch in a question that when I clicked on it, I decided to ask myself a question. And then I thought, what question would I like to hear me answer? And, uh, and that was the one I posed. To, that, uh, and you know what? I don't really have an answer for that. I just think it's just the miracle of, of um, 
the miracle of the follicularly challenged, the the Patrick Stewart miracle, I call it. <laughs> Patrick Stewart, Mitch Pileggi. It's it's just it's just you know. There's lots of you guys. <laughs> I was surprised that I didn't really recognize my voice when you played it. Isn't that weird? I did. It took me halfway through to realize that was me. I was all excited for just a moment there. <laughs> I was wondering why you were. We were saying, I would like to ask Robert Picardo a question. I thought, no, <laughs> just, just ask the question, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a keeper. <laughs> uh, Maybe the hardest I've left on this podcast. Go, go ahead, Tommy. <laughs> you, oh, God. Hi, Robert. How did you feel when the Voyage documentary became the most crowdfunded documentary ever? Also... Uh, I believe that you're involved with science uh, fact as well as science fiction. How important is that to you? Well, those are two great questions. Uh, first of all, I'm very excited about the Voyager documentary that there was such a, a support in the fan base and the interviews are being conducted now. Um, I was interviewed once already for the documentary and I'm going to do a second one sometime um, in the early fall. Um, and I think that the, you know, the producer of the documentary who also did the Deep Space Nine one is such a, he's such a passionate lover of Star Trek that he really, he really does a good job. It's not, you know, his goal is not to, he, he's, he's really looking for the soul of the show, not uh, any, you know, petty issues and you know, behind the scenes gossipy type stuff that you, that some people look for when they make a documentary about a long-running television show. It's really just all about what made Voyager, you know, uh, the, what made Voyager really great as, as an iteration of Star Trek. So uh, happy about that. Um, regarding your other question, and thank you for asking, I have a very long relationship with uh, a group called the Planetary Society. We are the world's leading space information nonprofit uh, presently led by Bill Nye, the science guy. Our co-founder is the great Carl Sagan. And uh, I became involved with him while Voyager was in its first run in the late 90s. I was asked to be part of a fundraiser. Um, it was Ray Bradbury's 70th birthday, and we were going to read um, all of some of his great works on stage. Um, and, the, and the group included Charlton Heston and John Rhys-Davies, uh, John Delancey, Tim Russ, myself, and other Star Trek colleagues. It was a great event. Afterwards, they asked me to join their advisory council. And I became involved with spearheading challenges, especially f for young people, um, in science and space exploration. One of the early ones, when we landed our first um, rover on Mars, the Sojourner, in 1998, um, the Planetary Society had a strategic partnership with the Lego Corporation, and kids in junior high school and high school could build their own Mars rovers out of Lego and then send their rover to a competing high school and explore that high school's secret Martian surface while the other high school sent their rover to explore your secret Martian surface and they would send the data back via the internet. It was really the perfect model for exactly what NASA was doing at that moment in time um, for young people to, you know, to, ex to experience that thrill of discovery. And I've, uh, at least one person um, went into, became a PhD 
in planetary science and she now works um, on uh, um, the Mars 2020 mission. And uh, at the time Voyager was on the air, she was 14 years old and she saw a public service announcement that I talked the producers into doing on the set about the Mars Millennium Project. She was 14, she entered the competition, she won and it changed her life. So that, that makes me as proud as anything that I accomplished uh, on the Voyager set those seven years was shooting that PSA for uh, the, the Mars Millennium Project, which was one of the challenges the Planetary Society partnered in for young people. I love that you're a big proponent of science and, and reality and, and that, that it reflects in your, your Twitter feed too. I, I, I follow you and I, and I have retweeted a number of your tweets that embrace sanity in the in the world that uh, especially America lives in right now, vis-a-vis uh, -vis lots of things, including politics and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I I guess I I looked at social media at first as a burden that oh gosh you got to do this now it's part of you know living in the in the modern world. <laughs> I did it to to help promote my last show, which hence the name Brad Travelers. Uh, but it, it's become it's become a real like a huge source of information for me. And in part, because I don't just follow the people I agree with. I don't, I don't engage with the people I don't agree with, mm -hmm. but I feel like it, especially as a Canadian where I don't really have a horse in this race politically, uh, I do trust me, but uh, I, I don't have an actual vote. And, and, but, and I, and I don't, and vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the pandemic and, and the pandemic response, I feel like I need to read people's uh, points of view who I don't agree with be just to just to get wrap my head around it because I, for the life of me, don't understand why anyone, given a life-saving vaccine available to them for free, wouldn't willingly say, stick that in my arm, please. I mean, we're, Canada's doing extraordinarily well. We're at over 80, I think we're at 82% of one dose. We'll probably get 82% of full uh, elig uh, eligible people within the next month or so, which is wonderful. But that means there's 18% of the of Canadians who are going, nope, I wanna risk it. And I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. Well, I, I, I uh, first of all agree with you, I'm baffled by it. And I'm particularly baffled by science fiction fans. I mean, if you love, if you love positive science fiction, like Star Trek and Stargate. Uh, but Star Trek, because Stargate is a secret mission happening in the present, but Star Trek is set in this imaginary future, 300 years out, in which science and technology save humanity. They, are, they empower humanity, they, they enable humanity. Science and technology are what enable us to understand our place in the cosmos. And, and we constantly depend on it to get us out of uh, situations. So if, 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 if you would enjoy that vision of the future, then why would you not take, a, when, when it presents itself to you in the present, this is a life-saving vaccine, this is science and technology triumphing over adversity right in front of your eyes. The same thing you watched on Star Trek last night. And here it is and you're saying no to it when you said yes to it last night. I don't get that at all, if that's part of your worldview. Um, and that's been the great discovery of mine, that there are so many people in, you know, in the loyal science fiction fan base who, who seem to have that disconnect, or they can, you know, between what they admire and love about science fiction and, and when presented with that 
in their regular lives, whether they, why they can embrace it. I, that, I, that is mysterious to me. And, and let's be honest, uh, the only way we're going to get out of this mess we're in, and it isn't just a pandemic, it's, it's, it's climate change. The only way we're going to get out of this is, as Matt Damon's character would say in The Martian, is to, to science the shit out of this. That's our only way up. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no going in another direction that's going to be helpful. Um, and, and, and now, now, like as today, they just, they just announced uh, uh, there was this big study and they just announced this morning how that, that sort of a red alert situation in terms of, in terms of climate change. And, and people just, to borrow another phrase from Star Trek, but, um, but that people don't just see it. It just, just drives me nuts. Anyway, we, I don't want to go on a rant and I don't want to dig you down, take you down a rabbit hole. Let's, let's try another question, Bob. <laughs> Hi, Robert. My name is Lauren. And I was wondering, what was your favorite part of playing Richard Woolsey, either in SG-1 or in Atlantis? Um, well, I've said this elsewhere. Um, Having spent seven years in the Star Trek franchise, which I totally loved, I loved my character and all that, but there was a very strong, very strong hand uh, um, on the production from the producers. And I understand that because the show is set in the future, they're very, very careful with the language. They don't want a hint of contemporary expression. They don't want, uh, although they're happy... They don't want any regional American speech. Uh, They're happy with mid-Atlantic speech or slightly British, but no regional speech. There's all sorts of things and you can't change a word on a Star Trek script without permission. That's the way it is. You don't, if something is hard for you to say or you don't like it, you have to call and get permission for everything. I had to call, if I had a grammatical, if I had a grammatically incorrect line as the doctor, I would have to call and argue that it was grammatically incorrect. And they'd say, well, it's a, ma- it's a, it's an, it's a figure of speech. And I'd say, but I, my, my grammar is programmed, right? My grammar has to be perfect. Maybe as I develop and learn, I can start to abuse grammar the way all of us do as we get older. But when you learn it the first time around, I have to speak. I, I, so everything, every little thing, if it was in, I was pre-med, uh, I was a biology major for a number of years in, in college. So if I, if I caught them on, a, on something that was actually scientifically inaccurate, I still had to explain it to them. You know, for example, I can't say the first cells to be affected by the board nanoprobes are the patient's blood. I have to say the first tissue to be affected is the patient's blood. Well, that sounds weird. I know it sounds weird, but it's right. Then we wait for 10 minutes, I get a call back saying, okay, say tissue. And, but everything would stop as we got permission to change any words. So I learned to do it in advance. I learned to read an early draft of the script. And if I had any questions or if I had a joke to suggest, you had to be spontaneous on Star Trek five days in advance. Does that make sense? You could be spontaneous five days in advance of when you wanted it's to It's called actually, pre-improvising, Bob. Pre-improvising. pre-improvising. Now, when I, when I got on Stargate and that I would, after we shot the scene as written, if I went up to the director or if one of the producers was on the set and I say, hey, can I try a different line or can I do this? They would, yeah, go ahead, go for it. It was such a liberating feeling. I cannot tell you how much fun it was to be able to be able to on the spot, in the moment, come up with an idea and do it, to not have to have pre-thought it. 
the pre-thinking works great and it does save production time. But on your show, it was sort of like, yeah, no discussion, try it. If we don't like it, we'll throw it out. That's, but that's a very liberating feeling after, I, I, you know. <laughs> we started doing that. I, I always started doing that, uh, but I learned it mainly from, uh, from doing The Outer Limits because, you know, there were no pre-established characters. And, I, and, 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 you know, sometimes, and also having been an actor, I know what it's like to try to say a line that just does not come out of your mouth, no matter how many times you try it as written. It's just, it's, it's you know, <laughs> having been paid to say the words, having been paid very little to say the words uh, out loud, I understand. No, guys, that's just, it's just <laughs> way too much. I mean, sure, you can read it, but saying it is a completely different thing. And, and so I get it. I completely understand when, when that's the case. And I do respect when someone uh, comes to my office and says, do you mind if I change this? Uh, because for, for whatever reason, as they're learning the lines, it didn't work. I prefer that so I could make the changes in the script because I, I, I don't like it when you get a situation where it becomes a free for all and everybody oh. just gets to say whatever they want. There's a, it, it's a nuanced thing, really. And, oh, well, and, I did uh, say specifically after we shot the scene as written, yeah, of course, you know, so I, I completely get it that you guys, you spent a lot of time, cre you know, creating those words and you are absolutely with, unless there's a prior discussion as you just described. And I yeah, also did yeah. that sometimes. I also called if, if I had, but I so rarely had a problem. To your, to your credit with what I was given to say. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have, uh, it, it all seemed to flow very easily. But I completely agree that you either ask the writer in advance, if you know you want to change something, you don't leave it up to the moment. But I'm just saying that if you had an impulse that you didn't anticipate. Oh, absolutely, completely agree, completely mm -hmm. agree. And some of the best stuff we've ever shot has come out of, can I just try this? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that, of course, why would, why would you say no to that? you're going to do another take anyway, it's time to do it. And I, and, and I'll, it's, you know, especially with good actors who know how to bring that. Tommy, do we have another? Hi there. This is Sinoy from San Jose. And I'm curious about your character in Stargate. Woolsey as a character, did you consider him a villain at any point? Or did you always see him as the hero of his own story, as they say? Well, Brad summed it up earlier. And any actor who sets out to play a villain is in trouble because a villain doesn't see himself as a villain. He he always he just sees he he may only see his objective or his worldview and not take into account other people's worldview. He may have a narrow, um, you know, he, that might be his main issue that he doesn't he's not very in tune with the effect he has on other people. But Woolsey definitely had um, a, a noble objective, in, in my opinion, but he just had very bad people skills. And if I've had a stock in trade as an actor, I have to admit, it's to play characters that you initially do not like and that you grow to like anyway. I mean, even, and even, even as far back as the Wonder Years when I played Fred Savage's, 12-year-old Fred Savage's gym teacher, Coach Cutlip, um, I think he was, uh, I don't remember how they described Coach Cutlip. It was very funny, but it, he, he, he had um, a certain amount of, uh, he, he just was overly commanding 
for someone who's teaching 12 year olds. He was just too, he, you know, he, he seemed to have, um, uh, what's the word? He seemed to have a paranoid streak that he wasn't being taken. At least that's the way I played him. I decided that Mr. Cutlip wanted to teach English, but he was given remedial reading and, <laughs> and gym. And he took that personally. That was my own idea. And that he had a chip on his shoulders. And the doctor had a chip on his shoulders. And it turns out Woolsey even, although you didn't see the chip early on, his chip was, well, wait a minute, people don't like me. And that's starting to bother me, I think, was started to be his chip. Why, you know, maybe I could really, maybe I could do the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a way that I haven't tried so far. So uh, these characters, I think the audience goes, oh, this guy is a jerk. But then soon or as early as possible, I try to show them in my playing of the character why he behaves the way he does. What particular neurotic drive or impulse or feeling that he's not being respected or whatever it is that makes him behave the way he does. And then the audience starts to root for your character to loosen up, to get happier, to be a better uh, you know, colleague with the people in his work environment because they've seen him, they've seen whatever drives his bad behavior and they root for that to change. That's my own guess as to what, what it is about. But I think it's fun for the audience. It's fun to laugh at my, my vision for my Star Trek character was Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> that's who the doctor, that's who the doctor was. The doctor was, was very puffed up and sitting on his wall of self-importance and brilliance, but he could be knocked off in a second. He could go from being, you know, this very inflated ego and knocked off his perch and, you know, um, easily. So that was, uh, uh, you know, it's funny to, sometimes it's funny to have a simple broad stroke image um, for a character. So the Wonder Years, I was, my, my image of Wonder Years, I told you what about him, you know, teaching remedial English. It was also Richard Nixon with a, with a 70 IQ. That was, who, <laughs> that was who Coach Cutlip was. And the doctor was Humpty Dumpty. Richard Woolsey, don't really know if I had an image for Richard Woolsey. I'll have to think about that. I'll come back with that one. <laughs> well, Bob, it was uh, it was really good catching up. I really enjoyed this talk. I, I uh, we we've been going on for a long time, and I feel like uh, I should let you go, but uh, we could go on. It's it was a lot of fun, and the sun has been on and off my face by the the place I chose to sit. So now it finally it was in my eyes. There, it was hard to look at you for a while. On that's screen. okay. That's okay. But now I see you clearly. That way. No, no, no. <laughs> but we will uh, we'll stay we'll stay in touch. And and I and, and like I said, I think I think uh, uh, Woolsey is alive and well in the in the universe. And uh, and uh, I I really have enjoyed this conversation. I gotta say. You have the best voice. Oh, Your voice is unbelievable. Thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. I'd like to close with my favorite COVID joke. Uh, it's uh, because I played a, a doctor for so long. This is a doctor's, uh, this is uh, told to me uh, by a doctor. Um, before COVID, um, I used to cough to cover up my farts. Now I fart to cover up my coughs. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know what That's made that good. made that pop. But, you know, I guess I guess the impulse is COVID has been a really long haul for and and has been a very tragic situation for a lot of people. But I do believe that you have to keep your sense of humor in all situations. You have to keep your sense of humor, and and but I also have to say, there is a light finally at the end of this tunnel, and 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 those of us who are doubly vaccinated have a sense of well-being and a sense of confidence going out into the world that I didn't have uh, before I was. And and I, I wish that the people who haven't uh, made the decision to be vaccinated would realize how good a feeling that is and how great it would be to not have to fart to cover up your cars. <laughs> I agree with you. I think, and we're, we're all, we are all crewmates on planet Earth, on spaceship Earth. And, and you've got to, you know, you've got to do what's best for the team. And the only way to keep this virus from mutating and newer mutations coming around is if a critical number of us are vaccinated. So be, all being on the same team, we can conquer this together. If we have too many people who don't join the team, it's just going to plague us. And it's going to be the hardest on those who won't join the team on the unvaccinated. We all know that, yes. but it's going to be hard on everyone and it will stay with us for years if we don't get that critical number of, of people vaccinated on the entire planet. On the whole, exactly, exactly. Which is why we, after we're, we get our own jabs, we have to, we have to uh, give, uh, we have to share the vaccine with the rest of the world. Absolutely. Canada has plans to do that. Canada has bought Way, way, way more than they than we could possibly use, so that when we're done, we can give the rest to uh, less privileged countries. So, as is as is uh, Joe Biden and leading our country yes. now. Absolutely, thank goodness for that, Bob. Great, great talking to you. I, I I hope we don't go another eleven years before speaking again. I certainly hope so too. Thanks, Brad. It's been a lot of fun. Doesn't he just have the best voice in show business? I, I'm so envious. I feel like we covered so much and yet we barely scratched the surface of his remarkable career. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find my essays and hundreds more stories like these on The Companion at www.thecompanion.app. Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm gonna share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I wanna give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events. You won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate master class. It's a Stargate chief master sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked.